This program is made possible entirely by you, the listeners, and I really could use your help. For all the ways to support the show, including signing up for a membership, check out the support box at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, an exclusive interview with Barney Frank by our friend Chris Priest, The Rachel Maddow Show, the ProPublica podcast, and the Media Matters Minute, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from markfiore.com. So this is John Boehner, and he's going to tell you what he really thinks you should do, which is not retire. And he's going to be very honest about what he wants to spend the money on instead. So you want to see Republican priorities? This is their leader in the House, the number one guy in the House for the Republicans. Go ahead. Uh, On Social Security, uh, we're all living a lot longer than anybody ever expected. And I think raising retirement age, uh, going out... uh, 20 years, you're not affecting anyone close to retirement, and eventually getting the retirement age to 70 is is, uh, a step that needs to be taken. I think, secondly, instead of using the uh, the wage inflator uh, that that increases in Social Security, I'll be based on the consumer price index. I think it's a more accurate reflection. Uh, over time, it will have a significant impact on the actuarial soundness of the program. Uh, and thirdly, uh, I think we need to look at the American people and explain to them that we're broke. And that uh, if you have uh, substantial non-Social Security income while you're retired, uh, why, are, why are we paying you? Uh, at a time when we're broke. Standard means testing. I just think it's, we just need to be honest with people. All right, why are we paying you? Well, because we paid into the system. You're not doing me a favor. We've all been paying into Social Security our whole lives. It's our money. You see, they make fun of the word entitlement. You know why that word exists? It's because we are entitled to that money because we paid that money, it's just coming back to us. You don't just get to take it, of course, which is exactly what they want to do, for more tax cuts to the rich. And as he said later in that speech, or that interview, I should say, for more wars. He said, how are we going to pay for the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war if we can't raid Social Security? And what he's not telling you is they've already been raiding Social Security for decades. Do you know, which the mainstream press almost never tells you, that Social Security has a gigantic surplus? You know, they're always talking about, oh, it's going broke, it's going broke, it's going broke. No, that's not true. It has a gigantic surplus. It's just that they took that surplus and they spent it already. They spent it as part of the regular budget for all of these years. And then when you ask the guy on the Deficit Commission, like Alan Simpson, he says, well, it's just a bunch of IOUs. (laughs) So... I mean, if it's an IOU to China or to Japan or Saudi Arabia, we'll pay it. But if it's an IOU to the average American who already paid into it, and we already robbed them of their surplus in Social Security, well, that's a sad day for you. John Boehner's got a great idea. Let's make you wait and, and work five years more. Ah, it's just five years of your life. What difference is it to John Boehner or Alan Simpson or any of these other guys? And that talk about the Consumer Price Index. What he's saying is, oh, the actual tab- actuarial tables will be much better. That means they'll pay you less. Do you understand? So, enjoy. I, what did I tell you? I told you they were going to come after the last piggy bank. 
which is Social Security. They're coming for your money. <laughs> You're the suckers at the table. They already funneled trillions to the bankers. You know, Dylan Radigan goes nuts about clawbacks every day. Why don't we get some of that money back from those guys? For all the free money we gave them. TARP was only 10%. TARP, that gigantic TARP that everybody cried about, was only 10% of the money we gave the bankers. Okay, why don't we get that back? Oh, no, 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 we can't. They're bankers. They're absolutely essential. We can't do that. No, we're going to make you work another five years. We're going to pay you less in retirement. And you know what? Even though you put money into it, Boehner says, well, why are we paying you? Ha! Maybe we won't. That's the Republican philosophy. And you know that there was a time in this country when that was considered crazy. Eisenhower said, there's only a couple of Texas oil billionaires who want to get rid of Social Security and they're lunatics. He was a Republican president. Now it's just thrown around like, oh, no big deal. Yeah, well, of course, obviously, we're going to rate Social Security to pay the bankers again. Obviously, right? This is Chris Priest for the Best of the Left podcast. I'm here with Barney Frank, Chairman of the House Finance Committee. Thanks for coming on. Welcome. All right, Al Franken proposed an amendment that had to do with the credit rating agencies, and you wanted it out of the bill. Uh, so what happened? The bill was never offered in the House. It was offered in the Senate. Senator Dodd talked to Senator Franken. When yeah. I said there were problems, uh, the rating agencies now make a separate deal with the investment firm. There's a problem with, with a conflict of interest. If they are assigned by a government agency, first of all, what, how do you set up a government agency that will make these assignments? How do you make sure that that's going to be done legitimately? Secondly, how do you decide what the cost is for the, doing the rating? You have to have a government rate-setting mechanism. The Security Exchange Commission now has two years to report back how they're going to make this work. No one thinks it could go into effect right away. It's a very complicated business that's going to you got to set up a new government agency. In fact, under the rule, the government sets up a private agency. That's another problem I have. It sets up what's called a self-regulating organization, which would be a purely private agency. I'm a little skeptical of them doing this. Another thing we did that I think is the most important, even more important than what Al Franken proposed, right now, you can't, if you are a certain kind of institution, buy a particular instrument unless it has a AAA rating. You can't sell them unless you have a AAA rating. Frankly, I think even under the Franklin rule, the ratings are unrealistic and people should not rely on them. We don't think that people should suspend their own judgment and count on the rating agencies. So we repealed all of the laws and all of the rules that make you rely on the rating agencies. When the rating agencies have a guaranteed government stamp of approval, then they don't have to try as hard to do it right. So what we do is to say there is no more government coercion that you use the rating agencies. They're all on their own. And I think that's the single most important way in getting them reformed. All right. What's left of the Blanche-Lincoln Derivatives Amendment? 
Well, in the first place, the most important piece there was not Senator Lincoln's amendment, but the Volcker Rule, sponsored Volcker by Paul rule. Volcker. Right. Because Branch Lincoln focused only on derivatives. What Paul Volcker said was the most important thing there, which we have implemented. And both Paul Volcker and Branch Lincoln are very supportive of the bill we passed. What Paul Volcker said was, don't let banks gamble with their own money. They should only be doing right. things that are for their customers. Now, what Paul Volcker said was he was worried not about the conflict of interest, but about deposit insurance being misused. Mm -hmm. He didn't want banks which have deposit insurance and the ability to deal with the Federal Reserve gambling that way with the money. And we adopted the Volcker rule almost exactly as he wanted. With right, so it's fully implemented then? I would say about 97%. Yeah. Some of the customers of the banks talked to Volcker and they said, look, we're not doing this for the banks, we're doing it for ourselves. What the Volcker rule said is that the bank should be doing things with customers' money, not with its own money. Some of the customers said, and that's essentially adopted, the customers argued in favor and Volcker agreed to a very slight exception to that called a de minimis rule where a very small percentage of the bank's assets could be invested alongside the customers. Some of the customers said, we want you to invest our money, but we want to make sure that you're really in this as much as we are. We want you to have skin in the game. So they talked to Volcker and Volcker agreed to a very slight amendment to, to uh, allow the bank to invest something like 3% of its own funds alongside the customers. This is the whole Senator Brown thing, right? Now, what Scott Brown was interested in mostly was something that we did in the House. There were two kinds of banks. There were general purpose banks and limited purpose banks. Some entities that are essentially not banks, insurance companies, mutual funds, mm -hmm. keep a small bank just to do some transactions that make it easier for them. Volcker, they're called limited purpose banks. Volcker agreed from the beginning that they should not be subject to those restrictions. Now, many of those institutions are very important in Massachusetts. Mutual uh, funds, for example, are very important in Massachusetts. Mutual funds did not cause any of these problems. They were not speculative. So what we did in the bill in the House was to make sure that the rules we adopted to deal with the Goldman Sachs and the Citicorps didn't unduly affect mutual funds and hurt them. And that was a part of that. That was one of the things that Scott Brown was interested in that we had already done in the House. That Volcker never—that was not an exception to the Volcker rule. Mm -hmm. Volcker never meant that to apply to limited purpose trusts. He did agree to a very slight exception to his rule for up to three percent. So that's why he was very supportive. He put out a statement. I would advise you. You're interested in this? Why don't you talk to Volcker? Uh, write to him. I'll have him send you a copy of the statement. You give me the card, okay. and I'll get your Volcker statement. He said he was particularly happy about that piece of it. Then you have derivatives. Now, Blanche Lincoln's amendment, by the way, was the less important part of derivatives, because what Blanche Lincoln's amendment said was, okay, derivatives can't be done by the bank, but some of the toughest regulators, including Paul Volcker and others, said, wait a minute, if they're not going to be changed in other ways, we'd rather them done by a bank than a non-bank, which will be even less regulated. Uh, if you could just explain real quick the FDIC uh, insured deposits and, and what changed in the bill in relation to the FDIC. Uh, it's the percentage of, they insure all bank deposits. Until recently, it was up to $100,000. We have increased that, by the way, to help the smaller banks to 250000 The reason for that is this. A lot of people would say, oh, well, I have more than $100,000. I'm not going to put it in a small bank because they might go under. I'm going to put it in a big bank. So deposit insurance will now go up to $250,000. And if you are a business 
a small business and you need checking and payroll, you can go up even higher than that. What the FDIC said to us was, we don't have enough money in the fund to be sure that we can pay off anything we have to. Yeah. Would you raise that from 1.15% to 1.35%? We said yes, but with this proviso, no bank with assets of less than $10 billion will have to pay. So Bank of America, Citicorp, J.P. Morgan Chase will have to pay more. Um, local banks won't, which we thought was very important. And what the Congressional Budget Office said is, when you raise that, you get credit for having raised government revenue. Now, I, we were going to do that anyway. I addition, this is where Scott Brown did have an influence along because with... they pay it beforehand in order to ensure that the bank... They pay it on a regular basis. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's like an insurance policy and the FDIC keeps a fund. And the fund that they keep on hand will now go to 1.35% of the total deposits rather than 1.15%. Okay. They think they... But we, they asked us to do that anyway. Secondly, though, the, and this is the issue here, in the bill to pay for what we think the cost will be, uh, we're told by the Congressional Budget Office, I put in the language that said that financial institutions with more than $50 billion in assets, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, mm -hmm. Citicorp, Goldman Sachs, etc., okay. and hedge funds with more than $10 billion in assets would have to contribute money till we got $19 billion. Unfortunately, Senator Brown, Senator Snow, Senator Collins said, no, we don't want them to have to pay anything, so they knocked that out, and that had to be paid for in a different way. I regret that, but Senator, we put that in our bill, but Senator Dodd came and said, look, I need 60 votes to get this bill passed, and I won't have 60 votes unless I get two of those three, so we had to give in. All right, I know you got to run Congressman Frank. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. George Steinbrenner died yesterday. 2010. Because he was smart enough to die in 2010, <laughs> there is zero tax liability to the estate tax. Republican Senator Jim Bunning, as ever, keeping it classy. He says George Steinbrenner was smart enough to die yesterday so his family could avoid paying taxes on his estate because of a loophole in the Bush tax laws. In Jim Bunning's rush to use the death of a man who had been dead for only about 24 hours in order to make his case against the estate tax, you can see both Jim Bunning's classiness and the Republican Party's enthusiasm for talking about what they think is now going to be their issue for this upcoming election. Yes, there's going to be a fight about immigration and uh, about Republicans berating unemployed people for being unemployed. Uh, yes, there will be a fight about energy. 
But the big issue you can see Republicans getting geared up for now is taxes, specifically the George W. Bush tax cuts. The 2001 and 2003 Bush tax cuts are set to expire at the end of this year. Everybody panic! And Republicans right now are psyched to campaign on extending the Bush tax cuts, on making them permanent. In Florida, for example, Republican Senate hopeful Marco Rubio just released his 12-step plan to fix the economy. 12 ideas he says will get the economy going again. Marco Rubio's idea number one, permanently extend the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts. And it's not just the Bush tax cuts that Republicans are psyched to run on. It's the whole Bush tax agenda. Marco Rubio put all of these things down as, as his ideas, but they're not really just his. Um, the person we have drafted as his tax spokesman tonight can actually help us through these. For example, Marco Rubio idea number two, cut taxes on American businesses. By cutting this tax, we can spur job creation in America. Mr. Spokesman? Tax relief is right. And tax relief is urgent. Help for small business means jobs for Americans. Also, Marco Rubio idea number three, permanently end the death tax. Mr. Spokesman? We must repeal the death tax. Marco Rubio idea number six, fundamentally reform the U.S. tax code. He says, quote, the U.S. should have a tax system that is simpler, or as the spokesman says, we simplified the tax code by reducing the number of tax rates from the current five rates to four. Before carrying on, beyond carrying on the Bush economic and tax agenda that worked out so awesome, other Marco Rubio ideas track very closely with what House Republicans have proposed this year. Things like ending taxes on dividends and capital gains and reforming the alternative minimum tax. Taxes is, is what Republicans want to run on. The problem is they also want to run on being against the deficit. The American people are saying to us, you're spending too much, you're running up too many debts, and we expect you to do something about it. I see no shame in wanting to lower the debt off the backs of our kids. I think that's a good conversation to have with America right now. Republicans want to be the anti-deficit and anti-debt party right now, but they also want to run on George Bush's tax policies. And that is the giant awkwardness at the heart of Republicanism right now. Because George W. Bush's tax policies did to the deficit what the I only eat fried cheese diet does to your cholesterol. In 2001, the first Bush tax cuts cost $1.3 trillion. Two years later, Republicans passed another round of Bush tax cuts at a cost of $350 billion. Neither of those tax cuts was paid for. They just added them onto the deficit. Republican Senator Orrin Hatch admitted to the Associated Press back in December that during the Bush years, quote, it was standard practice not to pay for things. It certainly added to the deficit, no question. In 2005, the Congressional Budget Office looked at the impact of the Bush tax cuts and estimated that they added $539 billion to the deficit that one year alone. If it wasn't for the Bush tax cuts, the U.S. in that year would have had a budget surplus, not a deficit. Do you remember how George Bush sold the tax cuts in the first place? He essentially said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, we can, we can afford to cut taxes, we got a surplus, it'll be, it'll be fine. The growing surplus exists because taxes are too high and government is charging more than it needs. The people of America have been overcharged and on their behalf, I'm here asking for a refund.
got that and more, and we got a huge deficit to show for it. Remember when they would complain about surpluses? Yeah. So now, how do you run as a Republican who's in favor of extending the deficit bomb that was Bush's tax policies and also say you're against the deficit? You do that by magic. Republicans are now arguing with a straight face that tax cuts just magically don't affect the deficit at all. On Sunday, Republican Senator John Kyle argued that you should never actually have to pay for tax cuts. And now the top Republican in the Senate is backing him up, Mitch McConnell, telling Talking Points Memo today that tax cuts don't have to be paid for because, quote, there's no evidence whatsoever that the Bush tax cuts actually diminished revenue. They increased revenue. Despite all of the empirical evidence to the contrary, Republicans are now arguing that tax cuts are good for the deficit, just like fried cheese is good for your cholesterol. You heard Mitch McConnell there say that tax cuts increase revenue to the government. He is making the case that cutting revenue increases revenue. Also, cats love baths. Even George W. Bush's former chief economist has called bullpucky on this sort of ridiculous logic. He wrote recently, quote, I did not find such a claim credible based on the available evidence. I never have, and I still don't. As our friend Ezra Klein wrote today at the Washington Post, what is helpful about all of this magical thinking about math and deficits is that the Republicans are at least making these claims openly now. Guys like Marco Rubio and the House Republicans and John Kyle and Mitch McConnell, they are writing this stuff down. They are saying it on tape. And that lets us show what they are really offering. So here it is, including the math. Here's what Republicans are campaigning on. Right now, the national deficit stands at about a trillion dollars. That's, that's where we're at right now if, if nothing happens. What happens if Republicans get elected and they do what they say they're going to do? Well, first, they say they want to permanently extend the 2001 and 2003 Bush tax cuts. That would add $2.3 trillion to the national deficit. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, as you saw from Marco Rubio, Republicans also want to repeal the alternative minimum tax, or the AMT. They also want to permanently end the estate tax and the gifts tax. Doing those three things would tack on another $1.1 trillion or so onto the deficit. The first thing that wasn't a tax cut in Marco Rubio's 12-point plan was repealing Obamacare, repealing health reform. You hear that from a lot of Republicans right now, including the top Republican in the House, John Boehner. If you did that, you would add another $19 billion, uh, you'd add another $138 billion to the deficit. The next idea from Marco Rubio was another Republican favorite, to prevent cap-and-trade energy legislation from becoming law. If you do that, you add another $19 billion to the deficit. So that is a grand total of $3.5 trillion. This is what Republicans are proposing to add to the deficit. Right now, our deficit is around $1 trillion. Republicans are proposing to add $3.5 trillion more to it. Don't let the door hit your fiscal responsibility when you're on your way out. If you close the door, the night could last forever. Leave the sunshine out And say hello to never The people are dancing and they're having such fun I wish it could happen to me If you close the door I never have to see the day again If you close the door, the night could last forever.
This week we talk with Jesse Isinger and Jake Bernstein about their investigation titled The Magnetar Trade. The investigation began in the summer of 2009 after Adam Davidson of NPR's Planet Money and Alex Blumberg of Chicago Public Radio's This American Life asked the ProPublica investigative reporters to do some digging on a theory they had about the financial meltdown. Davidson talked with Bernstein and Isinger the week of April 12th. Here's Adam Davidson. My background as, as an economics reporter, I generally assume that if there are incentives in place to do something, if there's a way to make money, then someone somewhere figured that out. And, and that's generally done me pretty well, certainly on Wall Street, you know. And, and so what we were noticing is end of 2005, early 2006, there's still enough of the market that believes in that house prices are going to continue to go up. But there's enough hints that housing prices are going to fall. And it seemed to be clear now, at least with retrospect, that, hey, there's a way to make money here. There's a distance between reality and perception that someone sharp could make money at. But that's just a theory. We didn't have any names. We didn't have any phone numbers. Jake, how did you... What do you do with that? What's your first phone call? What we did was we took your theory and we road tested it. And the way you road test something like that is you talk to as many people as possible. So we started setting up interviews with all kinds of people in in the structured finance world, CDO managers and bankers and anyone we could talk to. And everyone we talked to, we asked for more names and more people to talk to so that we could, you know, sort of amass a, a, a list of folks who would speak with us. And and unfortunately, because, you know, all the cats were running away from the stove, we only, you know, lots of people we talked to didn't want to talk at all, you know, but some people were willing to talk. They felt like it hadn't really been explained, that it it wasn't well understood what exactly happened. And the amazing thing was that as we started to talk to people, we kept on hearing the same thing, which was, you really should look into Magnetar. Magnetar is, uh, is an interesting story, and it hasn't been very well told. So are your first calls literally like, could this happen? Is this the kind of thing that might have happened, Jesse? Well, I mean, even before that, we were thinking about looking at the banks, and we had to figure out where to look within the banks because there were all sorts of problems, right? There were the, you know, there was the auction rate securities market. There were the sieves. There were various problems. And we figured out very quickly that we wanted to look at the structured finance market, the CDOs, because they were where the most losses were and the most uh, most toxicity was. And then as we talked to people, we had to try to test things out, as Jake says, to sort of say, well, what could the banks do? And I remember a bunch of theories that we had that may or may not end up being true, and we may or may not find them, but that was not actually the vein that we ended up really exploring for the first story, which was, you know, did the banks have accounting maneuvers that uh, hid losses at the end of 06, early 07? And so we were sort of just sort of piecing together the timeline about this uh, before we even really got into the story of of Magnetar. And then, I mean, this is a, an extraordinarily difficult story to report, even, I think, on the sort of you know, all investigative reporting is, is usually somewhat difficult because you're looking at stuff that, that people don't want you to know. But uh, Wall Street is a very insular, a very small world, as you know well, Adam, and uh, they don't speak in English. 
and particularly because of what had happened and because there's a growing number of lawsuits and things like that, uh, people were just not excited about talking about what happened. Jake and I used to come back from meetings saying, who has any motive to talk to us? How do we play on these guys' motives to get them? Why is it in their interest to talk to us? And we were struggling with that. Yeah, in fact, they have a disincentive to talk to right. us. Right. There's, there's really very little to be gained. And, and, and the people who ended up talking with, with us, I think, should be commended because, I mean, not just because it furthered our interest of, of doing this story, mm -hmm. but, but because, I mean, they were the ones who really believed that the story should get out. That there was stuff that we needed to know, um, and and stuff that we needed to know so that we don't repeat these kinds of financial crises in the future. And so that was, um, I think that's that's really important. How do you start getting that list of people who might talk to you? You're you're again you're you're calling everyone you can. Do you look through you know former employees of lists? How how do you start populating that list of everyone you can call? We essentially compiled as good a list of everyone who worked at the desks of the major structured finance shops, Merrill Lynch, UBS, Citigroup, uh, from 2003 on, basically. So we have huge databases now of uh, employees and, and what the structure looked like, the reporting structure. And then what we did was we tried to piece together who the players were, and we quickly sort of figured out that the CDO managers were really good players and started to talk to some of those guys, and we hit on some with some integrity who had uh, avoided some of the worst CDOs, and they, but they explained to us what the competitive landscape was like in 06 and 07. And I remember this, like if we, we thought at first, I think we'd meet weekly and then we realized monthly and then sometimes it would be less <laughs> than monthly because it, I mean, it, it's really slow moving. Well, the great the great scene in uh, All the President's Men, right, uh, where they're they're in the library and they're going through the cards. They're looking at all the cards to try to figure out who took out some books and the camera just keeps on going up and up and up and, and you, they're getting smaller and smaller and they're just going through the cards and there were there were there were times when we were so in the middle of it um, that it really felt like that. It felt like we were never going. We weren't moving fast enough. We weren't going to get to where we needed to be. But it's also the the complexity. It, we knew how difficult it was going to be to explain by uh, how much time it took for us to understand it and uh, and to really piece it all together because it is so complex. And I think. That is part of the reason why the reform movement isn't, hasn't been as focused and as strong as it has been is because it's really difficult to, to get this stuff and to figure out what they were doing and how they were doing it. And, and it's just masked in all this terminology and it's, it's not sort of stuff that's, that's, that you can really intuit out. We would hear of a deal's name and, and that's all we would get from one guy. Like we went out to meet with a guy. And he was great, and he, it had taken us a really long time to uh, meet with him. And he told us about a deal, but he told us about it and mispronounced the name of it. And so, but he said this was a terrible CDO. You got to look at this. And so we drove, uh, we rode home on the train, and we called another banker, and we said, "Have you ever heard of this deal?" And he said, "No, no, no. The deal's name is this, and that was the single worst CDO I had ever seen." in the whole 
boom. And it was just so exciting. <laughs> we really had gotten something. And, uh, but we didn't understand that deal until um, weeks before we started so writing So how do you do that? By deal, you mean a, a CDO? A CDO, yeah. yeah, yeah, a whole, yeah. One particular set of bonds that were created to perhaps to – to fail. Uh, how, how do you – so, okay, so you get the name. Then are you at a Bloomberg terminal? What's the next step there? Well, I mean, we actually learned earlier in the, early in the process that the only place to get CDO prospectuses is on a site sponsored by the Irish Stock Exchange in, I, in <laughs> Ireland. Yeah. They're not – because these are all private deals. The CDOs are actually supposedly based in, like, the Cayman Islands or different places like that. Uh, but the Irish, for some reason – keep these prospectuses. And they're not all up there, but most of them are up there. Well, because if I'm thinking of buying stock or, or more traditional bonds, I can get thousands of pages in a second online, right? Finance.yahoo or Bloomberg or whatever. Right. There's a million places. But these CDOs, because they're they don't have the same reporting requirements because they're pri- – I see. Because the SEC rule is anyone who might buy them needs to get this information. But if you're only selling it to a select group of people, you can give them the information but not right. give it exactly. to everybody. That's exactly private right. transactions. Yeah. And so, so we would you – know, we'd hear about a deal and then we'd, we'd rush over to the Irish website and see if they had the prospectus. And we'd download the prospectus. And the prospectuses are great because they list – you know, names of bankers and names of CDO managers and things like that. So that's good information. And they tell more about the, uh, how the CDO uh, works. Um, and so we would, we would use that as a place to go sort of looking and, and, and talking to people. So that was one thing we would do. And then we would go back to all the sources that we had already spoken to and say, hey, we just heard about this deal. What do you know about that? And they're like, oh, we know lots about that. Or no, we've never heard of that deal or, or whatever it was. And so slowly methodically we started piecing this stuff together i mean i think there are a few news organizations out there that would take on a project like this our top item this week fox business aired at least 11 segments in the past three days falsely claiming that the impending expiration of the bush tax cuts will lead to the largest tax hike ever have a listen. Since those tax cuts expire at the end of the year, is this perhaps evidence that tax hikes are coming? But the biggest tax hike in American history is about to hit taxpayers. The administration is waging war on the rich, and by January the 1st, the largest tax increase in U.S. history will take effect. The largest tax hike in U.S. history is coming, and nothing is being done. Shockingly, only three of those segments acknowledge that President Obama's proposed budget calls for retaining the tax cuts for 98% of Americans. Just to be very clear, what where we were, Alex and I were, is we had a theory and we knew that we would not do it. We, there was no way that Alex and I could do nothing but this for six months. And frankly, it would have taken us longer because we don't have the the experience and skills that you guys have. So without ProPublica, it just wouldn't. There's no way this story would have been revealed. This was an archaeological project, too. And I actually think that the highest uh, platonic ideal of an investigative work is sort of a detective work where you're uncovering something that's ongoing. And this was not that. But because it was archaeological, 
it was that much more difficult because there was a diaspora of bankers. So once we found out where these guys were, their firms were shut down. They were out of the business. We had to track them down like that. They, If they were unemployed, they had even less incentive to talk to us because they were looking for jobs. So that made it even harder. Is there a moment of, all right, yes, we have a story? I think it was more incremental myself. I mean, just to layer on the complexity here, this was a long short trade, right? So they were betting. I mean, they were they were investing in these CDOs. They were the the equity investors, the sponsors, the the initial investors, and then they were betting against them using credit default swaps. So not only do we have to understand how the the whole CDO world works and the role of an equity investor and and the CDO production line and all that stuff, but then we also have to understand this other sort of whole different kind of universe of credit default swaps, which is opaque and obscure and complicated as well. So and, and how these two pieces fit within within each other. And then, you know, because it's if this is so important for the storytelling, we have to understand the context. Right? So we have to understand how uh, what Magnetar was doing works within the larger context of the CDO market at this time. So they're doing subprime CDOs. And they're not just doing subprime CDOs. They're doing things called subprime mezzanine CDOs. And, and what's the importance of that? And how does that work? So once we really felt like we had a, f- a good understanding of things, you know, or enough of an understanding to really be able to articulate the story, that's sort of when we realized we we had something that... that that we could go with. But it was changing up, uh, you know, until the end because we were trying to refine it and make it absolutely airtight and getting their responses on things. Right. That's 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 the important part. I mean, we, we obviously needed to understand, you know, where Magnetar was coming from and, and what their position was about what happened and, and get them to under, to answer our questions. And, and, uh, and, and we needed that before we could we could actually do a story, obviously. And, and, you know, we kept telling them we're no surprises journalists. So everything that you need to understand about this story, we're going to lay out before uh, the story runs so that you have a chance to respond to it. And uh, you can see our questions on the, the website and what their responses were. And I think this is something that most people don't realize is that good investigative journalism is not about surprising people with a scandal at the last minute you're you really work hard to make sure that you've given the person you're writing about every opportunity to explain their side of the story and so when that thing comes out they know what the story says they've had a chance to respond well we had to this was so complex that we we couldn't you know we we had to make sure that they understood what we thought and that we understood what they thought that was key so we had this challenge this stuff is really complicated. So you guys had to understand it so you could understand the story. We had to understand it and and tell it as a narrative that would work on a radio show. And a radio show, This American Life, that isn't – you can't assume that people tuned in to hear really complicated uh, structured finance analysis. So, so – I know it from our perspective, but what was it like from your perspective working with us? I mean, we we had a very different agenda than nightmare. Yeah, no. yeah. just awful. Yeah. yeah, it was it was fantastic. Yeah, it was a I great mean, collaboration. Yeah, I think I think we we will all say the same thing, which was it was it was a an absolute delight um, to to take this stuff that is so complex and that is so difficult and marry it to to the the expertise and storytelling that you guys have. 
and uh, and and I it was just great. I mean, we never would have been bold or uh, imaginative enough to come up with a song about CDOs and what Magnetar had done. I mean that that w- that never would have entered our minds. So, ex- how did that idea come about? We were all in a meeting together uh, over at uh, this American Life headquarters. We were trying to explain the story to to Ira and 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 the other folks over there, and he was saying. Uh, you know, this is really kind of like the producers. So then uh, there was a sort of passing comment at the end, as I recall, where he said, I think w- you guys should do a musical version of this, which I just thought was totally insane <laughs> since we had just spent, you know, an hour trying to explain what the hell a CDO was. So I want to ask, like, now you guys are, are deep in, uh, was our theory right? Do you think, like, were those numbers roughly right? Was this 80% a sort of systemic mass hysteria crisis where there's lots of blame, but it's diffuse blame all throughout the system, and 20% a handful of jerks really planning ways to to make money off of this? The prevailing narrative of the financial crisis has been that Everyone was to blame. Uh, we all lost our heads. Those greedy homeowners on the one hand and those greedy bankers on the other hand, it was a very inchoate sort of general kind of collective guilt about it. And uh, and I think we wanted to turn that around a little bit. And the first thing we wanted to say and emphasize is that this was a Wall Street-generated problem that went from Wall Street to homeowners. So, you know, homeowners don't uh, arrive on the doorstep of the banks and say, you know, I'd like to get a, a mortgage that I can't afford that I'm totally unqualified for. Everybody would ask for that, but they wouldn't dream of uh, approaching a bank about that because they wouldn't get it. Uh, and the only reason they got it was that the banks could sell to Wall Street and Wall Street could um, make them into CDOs and sell them to investors through all sorts of questionable accounting rating agency problems and questionable behavior. And so what we really wanted to do is try to change, begin to change the narrative to talk about um, really the questionable behavior around the CDO market. And ultimately, I think they're inseparable because they created a systemic a system that really fed on short-term interests up and down the line. And so it was, it was systemic. But it was a sort of systemic thing that it was fueled by short-term thinking and by individual greed and, uh, and by some people who probably knew that what they were doing was somewhat questionable. And so th- they built a system that exacerbated that. So it was systemic, but it was also that other, other thing as well. And that's where we get to this moment of journalism. This crisis happened to unfold at exactly the moment when journalism as a profession was least ready or capable of dealing with. And just because so many resources, journalistic resources, went into the events of the fall of 2008 with the the great bailout, which was a legitimate subject to blanket with coverage, uh, that really drained resources from thinking about the lead-up to the crisis and this period that we're focused on, which is 06-07. We went through a period in America of I think, of people being unbelievably furious about the bailout. I think when you mention it to people, they remember to be furious, but it's not probably top of mind as it was a year ago. Has this made you guys, like, do you feel it 
as if it happened this morning. I mean, do you, I, I got to say, my experience of, of learning more, the Volucas report, the Magnetar reporting you've done, I now feel like I have a richer, fuller sense of how at least a good portion of Wall Street really, you know, did, did things that did not merit being bailed out by the U.S. government. I never thought they did do anything that merited being bailed, but, but it, it, I felt that anger freshen, you know, freshen, increase. Is that? I think there are two things that I would say about that. Was one that from the reaction to our story, it it seems to us that people are hungry for these stories. They want to understand this stuff. That there is a great demand for stories about that period. That even if it uh, is several years on, and I was very worried about it. I thought this story can land on a Friday afternoon and. Uh, and totally disappear. But people were, you know, I don't know, apparently there's this thing called Twitter that people were conversing about it on uh, all weekend, you know, and all this stuff. And then the second thing I would say is that we were steeped in this period. We have been steeped in the period and we're amazed at what went on. And I hope that the follow-on stories will amaze people at what happened in the, in the structured finance world because I think it is... Uh, stunning. Now that I've lost everything to you, you say you want to start something new, and it's breaking my heart you're leaving. Maybe I'm grieving. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. You know I've seen a lot of what the world can do And it's breaking my heart in two Because I never want to see you sad, girl so unemployment, obviously, uh, uh, Republicans uh, continue to filibuster the unemployment uh, uh, extension. And uh, uh, it turns out that uh, one reason perhaps why, you think it's just because they're worried about the deficit. Nope, turns out everyone trying to get the unemployment extension, everybody on unemployment really, are uh, shiftless, uh, worthless, uh, lazy uh, drug addicts. Right. Yeah. Well, you knew that. Of course. I mean, anyone who gets unemployment is just... They just want to sit on their butts and do nothing else. Uh, back in March, uh, John Kyle, senator from Arizona, unemployment insurance quote, doesn't create new jobs. In fact, if anything, continuing to pay people unemployment compensation is a disincentive for them to uh, seek work. Do these people know how much individuals get in, un in unemployment? I, I think that they have this weird uh, idea where people get thousands of dollars each month and they're living this lavish lifestyle going and having lobster dinners in New York. Yeah, well, we're going to get to exactly how much it is. Uh, uh, last month or earlier, in this, uh, two months ago in May, Judd Gregg from uh, New Hampshire 
Extending benefits undermines the economic recovery. That basically uh, keeps an economy that encourages people to, rather than go out and look for work, to stay on unemployment. Again, as we see the unemployment numbers skyrocketing, we know the economy is tanking. We know we're not creating new, that we are creating new jobs, but not to recover from the jobs we're losing. Actually, maintaining that what's happening here is is folks not going out to look for jobs. Like the jobs are there. Yeah, people just aren't looking. They're just for that. sitting on. By the way, it's not just uh, Republicans. Jason Altmaier is in a conservative district uh, from Pennsylvania, congressman. Uh, he was when he tried to push party leaders to uh, uh, scale back a domestic aid bill. Uh, at some point, he says you have to take a step back, look at the relative value of unemployment benefits versus people looking for jobs. Diane Feinstein uh, here from California uh, said essentially the same thing. Uh, although it should be pointed out, at least in her benefit, she has voted to reauthorize benefits every single time. So, mm -hmm. although she said some stuff to suggest otherwise. Uh, then uh, then there's all this stuff uh, like uh, the anecdotal stories that guys hear and trot out. So uh, John Linder, who's a rep from uh, Georgia, uh, he quote, even when businesses are willing to hire nearly two years of unemployment benefits are too much of an allure for some. Uh, and then uh, he was at not even his district. That was a Detroit news story about landscapers having trouble hiring unemployed folks who'd rather stay on the dole. My favorite expression. The evidence is mounting, he says, that so-called stimulus policies rammed through Congress are doing more harm than good. Uh, and then there's Orrin Hatch, uh, from, uh, of course, Senator from Utah. Um, he wants to drug test the unemployed. Oh, my God. A lot of people are saying, hey, it's about time. Why do we keep giving money to people who are going to use it on drugs instead of on families? That's right. That's what happens. You know, time after time, you'll see these Republicans making claims that have absolutely no evidence to back it up. Like, really? Okay, what are you basing that assumption on? Did you read some sort of study that told you that people who receive unemployment are drug dealers or uh, addicted to drugs? Do you have any bit of proof? No, I'm just going to make crazy assumptions with absolutely no evidence. And there are people out there in the U.S. who will listen to it and believe it. No, no, we're, that's what we're hearing. We're definitely hearing it. Um, the, uh, uh, to be eligible for benefits, uh, guys, a person is required to have been laid off for economic reasons. So you have to have lost your job. It just can't be that I haven't had a job in six years, mm -hmm. that I've been lazy and shiftless my whole life. I've been putting my uh, feet up in my house and uh, watching Maury Povich. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have actually lost your jobs uh, and, and through no fault of your own. You can't have quit your job. Um, uh, the benefits uh, total 74%, so three-fourths of the poverty threshold mm -hmm. for a family of four. Uh, there are five job seekers for every job available, uh, and a full third of the nearly 15 million unemployed don't receive benefits uh, in the first place. So, yeah, I'm sure you can find a story of a guy. People don't understand numbers. They're all like prints. <laughs> um, uh, so, well, you heard it from Jenk at the beginning of the show there. Uh, the Internet is all about numbers, um, and it's going away, the Internet. But, like, yeah, I mean, if the overwhelming majority of people, again, if it's 74% of the poverty threshold and you have to get fired through no fault of your own and there are five jobs for every one, that doesn't mean there are five people going for every job. What it means is there's 100 people going for every 20 jobs, but among those hundred people might be somebody who's like, no, nah, I'm not going to go for the job. I'll just take my benefits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got it. And the other 99 people, so you want to cut the benefits off because you found one guy who is going to take the 
$1,200 a month, meaning $13,200 a year. No, he's good. He's fine. Or whatever that is, $14,400. I can't imagine living on $13,000 a year. Yeah, I'm, it's the, uh, I, I, I mean, it's just, it's so little money. And again, five job seekers for every job. It's insane. Insane. And by the way, obviously, it, you don't even need, The Daily Show just did a piece on this, you don't need any kind of degree in economics, you don't need anything to totally understand that these benefits, which aren't that much money in the overall scheme of things, well, we got a $653 billion defense budget, um, uh, they help the economy. Because if you don't give these folks money, they can't even pay their rent. They spend literally no money. Mm -hmm. Like this money gets put right back in. It's not the biggest economic stimulus there is, but there literally isn't an economist in the country who doesn't think that it's a little bit of a stimulus. Uh, and Fox News goes around suggesting, I wonder who these economists are. We can find an economist who really thinks every economist thinks it. I ain't going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. Look, we have we have too much work to do. We have too much work to do. To the point that you that you just raised about uh, you know stepping down. Look, every time something happens, you know people say, "Oh, you should step down." I should step down. Well, the reality of it is that's not happening. So stop the noise on that. Number two. I ain't going anywhere. That was a defiant Michael Steele, the chairman of the Republican National Committee, attempting to silence the critics within his own party who have been calling on him to resign. After he was caught on tape expressing doubts about the war in Afghanistan, after he was caught chastising President Obama for getting involved in and then escalating a war in Afghanistan that, to his mind, cannot be won. Steele's comments on Afghanistan have sort of exposed what has really been a growing rift on the right, not just about Afghanistan policy, but about the appropriate role of American military engagement around the world. After Steele made those comments, which appeared to advocate for American military restraint, he was almost immediately attacked by the founding father of the neoconservative movement in America, one William Crystal. Crystal was among the first to call on Michael Steele to resign, writing, quote, There are, of course, those who think we should pull out of Afghanistan, and they're certainly entitled to make their case, but one of them shouldn't be the chairman of the Republican Party. After that call from Michael Steele to resign, William Crystal was then called on to resign by someone who is sort of thought to be in his ideological soulmate, Ann Coulter. Ms. Coulter, who I don't think I'll ever be quoting again on this program, writing, quote, I thought the irreducible requirements of republicanism were being for life, small government, and a strong national defense, but I guess permanent war is on the platter now, too. Didn't liberals warn us that neoconservatives want permanent war? This is a conflict on the right that has brewed and bubbled up in little ways for a while, but thanks to Michael Steele, it is now on full display. 
The unifying feature of the political right during the George W. Bush years was national security. After 9-11, the Republican Party galvanized itself as the party of strong national defense. That began to fracture a little bit in the run-up to the Iraq War, but there, there was a small but vocal minority of people on the right saying the Iraq War was a mistake. But it was largely this national security, neoconservative vision that kept the right together. Now, in the post-Bush-Obama era, there's a new unifying feature on the right. The thing that everyone on the right can now agree on isn't about family values or foreign policy, it's about spending. It's about too much government, too much government spending, too much debt and deficit. That's the thing that really unifies Republicans right now. The problem for Republicans, though, is that if you're serious about wanting to cut government spending, you can't help but look first at the bloated military budget. The Pentagon budget for the current year is $693 billion. That's up from $666 billion last year. And that number is expected to balloon to $708 billion next year. Defense spending has doubled over the last 10 years. As NPR recently pointed out, the United States is now spending as much on defense as the rest of the world combined. So if you're a Republican, this is sort of a problem, right? I mean, how can you be the party of national security and be the anti-government spending party when national security in its current incarnation makes up the biggest chunk of government spending? Enter brewing Republican civil war. If you're going to talk seriously about the growth of government, if you're going to take on government spending, you can't really do that without looking at the military budget. That fact has not escaped Republican Congressman Ron Paul of Texas. He co-wrote an op-ed this week entitled, Why We Must Reduce Military Spending. In it, Congressman Paul argues, quote, it is irrefutably clear to us that if we do not make substantial cuts in the projected levels of Pentagon spending, we will do substantial damage to our economy. Substantial reductions in military spending must be included in any future deficit reduction package. Challenging Congressman Paul from his own party? Well, it is none other than fellow Tea Partier Sarah Palin. Palin arguing via Facebook that defense spending should essentially be untouchable. Quote, something has to be done urgently to stop the out-of-control Obama, Reid, Pelosi spending machine, and no government agency should be immune from budget scrutiny. We must make sure, however, that we do nothing to undermine the effectiveness of our military. Cut spending in other departments, apart from defense. We should not be cutting corners on our national security. If the new right is going to be all about restraint, small government and cutting spending, then shouldn't military spending be on the table along with everything else? Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Barney Frank of Massachusetts. He co-wrote that op-ed on the need to reduce military spending with Republican Congressman Ron Paul earlier this week. Congressman Frank, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Great to. Thank you. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit about dollars and cents. I think, you know, there's kind of two categories to think about in terms of cutting back on American defense spending. One is what we might call wasteful spending and padded contracts. And the other is a more, a sort of more profound look at the, the military posture of the U.S. government. I wonder which of those two you and Congressman Paul are, are sort of focused on. Both, but more the latter. And I appreciate your making that distinction. If you concede to the geostrategic arguers that we have to have the military footprint that we have, you're not going to save a lot of money. Yes, it's nice to be more efficient, but there are two things. First of all, any entity that thinks it has an unlimited budget, it's going to be very hard to impose efficiency on them. You've got to start capping people to get them to see the need for efficiency. But secondly, waste alone isn't the issue. Um, NATO isn't wasteful. 
NATO was a great accomplishment of Harry Truman in 1949, but you know, uh, Harry Truman, if you go from 1949 and Harry Truman forward, if you took the same period of time backwards, you're talking about the administration of Grover Cleveland. It's an entity that's outlived its usefulness to a great extent, and it's a way in which we subsidize the militaries of Europe. So you cannot just do it with waste. Uh, you can't just do it with bad wars, although the Iraq war, of course, was a trillion dollars. But we also insist that there is a profoundly mistaken geostrategic view that says we're the world policemen, we're going to be everywhere, we're going to intervene in all these disputes. By the way, we usually wind up doing more harm than good when we intervene and get people angrier at us. Uh, in Iraq today, the most radical elements, uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iranian government, they're stronger as a result right. of our Iraqi intervention, not weaker. But uh, it, uh, too long an answer for a very good question. It is the latter, the strategic reach, that is the bigger part of the savings. And let's, so you, you just raised the point of the war, and I, I, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, if you're going to start down this road, it seems like the lowest hanging fruit, quite frankly, is to just vote against the supplemental for the, for the war in Afghanistan. I mean, if we're going to start paring back on the amount of money we're spending on defense why continue to fund this this war which is all right well but you because you've fallen into a, a little trap first of all let's not forget about iraq right iraq is you talk about low-hanging fruit iraq isn't low-hanging fruit it's laying on the ground and rotting um we i was confronted yesterday well not nastily by wolf blitzer he said well what's the matter with the president's plan in iraq He's planning to get combat troops out this August and have only non-combat troops into the end of 2011. And my answer is, so what are we paying these guys to do? Traffic duty? I mean, what are, what are non-combat troops doing in Iraq? We don't need to be spending tens of billions of dollars to referee the Iraqi political system. So the easiest one to do is get out of Iraq. In Afghanistan, I voted for the amendment that said, by my colleague Barbara Lee, we will spend only as much money as you need to withdraw in an orderly fashion. You put all those troops in there, you can't just walk away. You've got to be able to retreat in an orderly fashion, withdraw in an orderly fashion to protect people. I think the time has come to do that in Afghanistan. I can understand the argument there. There is no conceivable reason for us to stay in Iraq, a place we never should have gone into in the first place, where they are not facing any external enemy of any kind and where we're told the combat mission ends in a month. So uh, both of those, it is true, are there. But I'll tell you, an even easier one, it seems to me, is NATO. Right. Uh, I like Germany, I like the Netherlands, Denmark. Those are very nice countries, full of nice people. I don't understand what we are defending them against in the first place. I don't know who's threatening them. And secondly, if they feel threatened, let them defend themselves. Uh, this, this notion that we have to subsidize the budgets of our wealthy Western European allies is nuts. And I would throw in Japan. We have 15,000 Marines in Okinawa. I, I think most people thought the Marines left Okinawa when John Wayne died, even though he never went there himself. I mean, w what are we doing with Marines in Okinawa? We need air power and sea power vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. We're not going to land Marines on the Chinese mainland. So there was even easier arguments to make. There are people sitting around uh, carrying out somebody's strategic view that have no reasonable function. Thanks for listening, everyone. First of all, today, I just want to thank uh, Chris Priest for providing uh, Act 2 of today's show, as well as the music that followed it, actually. He had a chance to sit down with Barney Frank and interview him recently, asked a bunch of hard questions, and, uh, and sent me the audio, so that was excellent. 
as I said, he also provided the music that followed that clip, and uh, and that was just one of many of his great songs. Uh, he's a musician by trade, actually, and all of his material can be found over at chrispriestmusic.com. He's an awesome volunteer and a great supporter of the show, so obviously, I highly recommend you go check out his site and buy all of his music. And now, secondly, just to uh, touch on uh, Las Vegas again, because I was going to talk about uh, Netroots, um, I actually got more hate mail about badmouthing Las Vegas than I expected. I, you know, honestly, I, I really didn't expect to get any, but there you go. And, and, you know, frankly, like it's, it would be a silly debate to have the, the merits of Las Vegas, uh, because frankly, it's, it's mostly a, a matter of opinion. I mean, if it, it's so just not my kind of place, I'm, predisposed to not liking it. What I think is not really uh, just a matter of opinion, not really up for discussion, is that we shouldn't just outright waste electricity. I think that everyone who listens to this show should be able to agree on that. And so so the one comment I'm going to bring up, which I thought was the silliest, was that someone was saying basically, oh, you know, back off, it's not a big deal, because uh, Hoover Dam generates almost as much electricity as the strip in Las Vegas uses. And I don't follow that logic. They were basically saying that energy is being produced in a non-polluting way, I guess is what he was saying, to which I respond, well, that's great. Uh, If the strip didn't exist in the middle of the desert, and use an unbelievable amount of energy, then think how much extra energy we'd have sitting around. We'd have a whole nother Hoover Dam's worth of energy to use at our disposal, and think how much less coal we'd have to burn, and how many uh, mountains we wouldn't have to blow up to get that same amount of energy. Just uh, seemed like an argument not quite fully formed. Anyways, moving on to net roots, you know, it, the whole thing was a, a little bit of a whirlwind. I, I definitely enjoyed my time there. I definitely want to go next year. And th- this was my first net roots. And so frankly, I think I just wasn't prepared for it. So if I could do it all over again, which I hope to do, except next year, um, I would I would do everything about the same as I did, but more. I would go to all the sessions I went to, but I would take better notes. I would, uh, you know, network with more people and meet more people. I would engage more. I guess, you know, I was I was very much a uh, a receiver of information, on, you know, through uh, Twitter or how whatever other methods were out there. Um, but mostly Twitter, as people were talking about the conference uh, as it was happening. You know, I would I I was receiving information, but not adding to the conversation as much as I could have. So so all those things, like I, it felt kind of overwhelming. But I hope that at least now that I've done it once, I'll be prepared for it next year. The one thing that I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about it in, in broad strokes because there's so there there was so much that happened that I'm just going to touch on kind of the most relevant thing. And, and so what I was really excited about is something that I didn't hear actually. One of my biggest pet peeves about you know people organizing uh, you know a, a, a big gathering like that or a rally of any kind where you're getting people together and Uh, and talking to them and inspiring them and doing things like that, my biggest pet peeve is to hear the phrase or something to the effect of, the fight starts now. 
we're, you know, now that we see the problem in front of us, we're going to get started. We're going to take on this issue and we're going to win. I cannot stand that because to me, that is one of the most daunting things in the world to hear, you know, especially all the people at Netroots, they know what the problems are. They're engaged already. And so then to hear a phrase like that, that implies we haven't started fighting back yet, but we're about to is, uh, is incredibly daunting. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like having a, a 20 page essay you have to write and looking at the blank page. It's, you know, once you get started, it's so much easier, but that blank page is what kills you at the, at the beginning. And so what I'm excited to report is that I don't think I heard that the whole time I was there, which I usually do at, at, uh, you know, gatherings like that. So I'm excited to be able to report that the people who make up Netroots, uh, they really, I think, do see themselves accurately as a movement that has already started, has already been going, and we we just kind of touch base each year and propel ourselves forward even even further, not looking back a whole lot and not pretending like we're just getting started. And I think that's a really important thing to get people to join in. I think it's so much easier to get people to join a movement that already has momentum than to get them to join at the beginning saying, we promise that eventually we will get started and we will create some momentum. Will you help us start? You know, it's, it's such a, it's such a harder sell to do that. So that is, that's my takeaway from the whole thing. Uh, it kind of summed up just like that is, you know, there's so many issues that are important to the entire progressive movement. And I think they were all represented there basically, and that they were re represented in such a way that these are issues we're fighting. This is what we've done. This is what we're doing. This is how we're moving forward. Join us as we go forward. Uh, I think is a really powerful message that, that works really well. So obviously I was inspired. I encourage everyone to feel that inspiration and, and get involved in your own way. If, if you're, able, capable, willing, and so forth. Now, speaking of people who joined a movement that already has momentum, let me thank a couple of uh, recent members to the show who make the show possible. Paul E. signed up for his monthly membership back on March 13th and has stuck with the show since then. And uh, Teresa C. signed up for a full year membership starting on March 24th. Of course, these members and all the members enjoy the benefits of membership, uh, including, I think, primarily the warm and fuzzy feeling they get knowing that they're making the show possible. I mean, without the support of the members, this show is a, a hobby at best where you get four episodes a month uh, on, on a good month. Thanks to all of the members who have signed up, the people who donate, and and you know, with the knowledge, the confidence that more people are going to sign up, it, uh, it makes me able to do this show full time and put out 10 shows a month the way I do. Besides that, uh, members get access to bonus content. It's all the stuff I find, like, you know, great material uh, that would normally go into the show and ends up being cut for time. I put that out into special members-only podcast feeds, um, and so th they get all of the audio and then even some video material that way that nobody else gets because it just doesn't ever make it into the show. And besides that, they actually also get all the material that does make it into the show uh, each, each individual segment, whether it be audio or video content, and they get all of that stuff, you know, just in case they want to check out that as well. 
So thanks, of course, to Paul and Teresa and all the members for making the show possible. If you are interested in signing up yourself, uh, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. There's also a big link in the big support BOTL box. There's a big orange box on the side of the website with all the ways to support the show, whether it be, you know, donating your memberships or things that don't cost any money at all and just kind of help spread the word. So that's going to do it for today. To follow the show between episodes, check us out on Facebook and Twitter and follow us there. For all the details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fun fair